Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you guys to go ahead and take your Bibles out and turn over to the first letter of John near the very end of the New Testament. We're going to be starting out in chapter 2 of that letter. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one this morning. We've provided some at the middle of each aisle, and somebody sitting near the middle will be happy to pass one over to you if you need one. Please take that with you and uh, give us a chance to talk to you about what you read there. We believe that God has spoken to us, that 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 word is among his greatest gifts to us, that it has life in it, and that it's available and accessible to all of us if we'll read it. And it's especially rich to read it with friends. And uh, we'd love to do that with you. So please take that copy and, and let us have a chance to, to talk to you about what you find there. We are uh, going to be studying the first letter of John. John was uh, one, we believe, one of Jesus' disciples who wrote this letter, and he wrote it to some friends who were part of a church that he had founded as part of his ministry uh, after Jesus left the earth. It was on him and others like him to travel around and share the news about what Jesus had done. And that led to new churches. And sometimes new churches invited new teachers besides the ones who'd first founded these churches. And those teachers often taught different versions of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And that seems to have happened here. So John's writing this letter back to his friends to do some pastoral work for them from a distance. He's in another place now. He's doing the same work for other people now, but he still loves these people. And so he's, he's writing back to them uh, the, using the best technology they had available at the time, I guess. And a day before Skype, this is how you got your message to people who you couldn't see for yourself face to face. And so in this letter, we have his work to try to call his friends back to the truth about who Jesus was and what he said and what it looks like to follow him. And what this letter does for us is try to help us see some of the constant, consistent marks of true Christianity. Because sometimes we ask the same questions they were. What is the real deal? Because there's different versions of Christianity out there. It depends on who you talk to sometimes. One of the things that, uh, that John talks about a lot in this letter, one of the things he goes back to over and over as a mark of true Christianity, if you want to see the real thing, look for this. One of the things he goes back to over and over is obedience. And obedience as a kind of mark of true Christianity can be really easily misunderstood. So we want to take some time this morning to understand John on his terms and then to try to sift out misunderstandings we might bring to this subject. I especially want to be sensitive to that for you this morning if you're here as somebody who's interested in Christianity, maybe not a Christian yet, and wondering what it looks like to follow Jesus it could be that this talk of obedience we're going to get into this morning and, and several other times throughout the study of First John is going to play into expectations that you're bringing to what religion is and to what all religions teach. Maybe you come to religion in general thinking of it as, as something a whole lot like, let's say, boy scouting, where in scouting, you, you try to one by one accumulate these marriage bad, merit badges until you get to the end of the line, and then, and then there you are, your eagle scout now. So how do you understand, the, how do you recognize what a, what a true eagle scout is? Well, you look with the merit badges, and you see what they've attained, and that, that's how you recognize them. And maybe you thought of, think of religion as, as something similar, this constant accumulation of merit badges until you've got them all. You've got the complete set, and now you're a genuine article. Or maybe you think about religion as more like paying down student loans, where you've, through bad things you've done, accumulated this debt, it's hanging over you, it's always there, and so you're trying to chip away at it by doing good things that will, that will, that will bring that debt down, hoping that by the end of your life, you've wiped it away. 
which will be more than many of you can say for your student loans, but that's a, a, another matter. Uh, this way of thinking about religion and where obedience factors in is really common, partly because it's actually what some religions teach, that, that, that to get right with God, to live a worthy and meaningful life means accomplishing a life full of goodness or successfully balancing out what bad you've done with, with good so that you come out even at least and maybe in the, red, in, in the black, rather. Unfortunately, that's, that sort of idea about where obedience factors in has been taught in, in some mistaken versions of Christianity that maybe you've seen, maybe you've even participated in before. But what I hope you'll see today is that that's not at all what the Bible teaches about obedience. <laughs> obedience is important. Obedience is, is non-negotiable. John's going to tell us that today. But it is not how you get in. It's not how you establish yourself. It's not how you earn favors from God or convince God to love you. That's not what obedience does. Because we tend to think of obedience like that, sometimes you get to a section of the Bible that talks about how important it is to obey, and it can be threatening to you, off-putting, distasteful, or maybe even just, just downright scary. Because often we come at obedience from the wrong angle. The categories we have for why you would obey are fear. We obey because we're afraid not to. We're afraid of what the consequences would be if we disobey. Or, or we come at obedience from the angle of pride. We obey in order to, to prove ourselves, in order to establish ourselves over what others maybe had been able to attain. And either way, whether we're thinking about obedience as something we, we, we participate in because we're afraid or because we're trying to prove ourselves, it's a have-to situation, not a want-to. We obey because we have to, to avoid or to accomplish something that's important to us. But in, in the Bible, which talks about obedience a lot, Obedience is always couched in relationships of love. Obedience always starts with God's love for his people, not their love for him. And then in response to their love for him, obedience flows from, from their love and trust in the God who has loved them. That's why obedience is such an important test, why John is going to call us back in this letter several different times and say, if you want to see a genuine Christian, someone who really knows God, then you'll look for someone who obeys, not because that proves they've got enough merit badges to have gotten into that tier, but because that shows they really know him. They've come to know him as a lover of sinners, and that has captured their heart so that they love what he loves, so that they walk like, like he walked. Obedience always comes out of a healthy and loving relationship that God creates by his grace through Jesus. Obedience is not how you get a relationship with God. It's what a relationship with God looks like on the ground when it's already there. So I want to help you see this from John's perspective in these verses. He, he is going to start in this section, beginning in chapter 2, the first verse of chapter 2. He's going to start in this section by reminding us not about how important obedience is, but by reminding us how sinners have been loved by God. And only after he's described what God has done to love sinners well through Jesus, only then does he switch into obedience as a way of, of reciprocating a love God has already shown. I want to show you these two steps 
John points us to how God loves sinners, and then he points us to how sinners in response love God. I want to make sure both of those things are clear from the first six verses of John chapter 2. And I want to begin by reading them. So I'm going to ask you now to please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, this is God's word to us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins and not not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to make sure it's clear that John starts here with how God loves sinners before he talks about obedience so that he can talk about obedience and to make sure you understand what he means and separate it from what he doesn't mean about obedience. He starts with truth about God and God's love for sinners through Jesus. The first thing he says at the beginning of chapter two is, is that he's writing. He puts his cards on the table. I'm writing to you so you won't sin. That's the end game here. I want you to believe sin is serious enough to avoid it. But in order to convince them of that, in order to show them that sin is serious enough to avoid it, in order to accomplish what he's going for, which is them not sinning, he doesn't start with fear and he doesn't start with pride. He starts with God's love for them in Jesus. He can't risk them missing the point, misunderstanding what he's saying. That's why he jumps straight into, okay, I'm writing so that you won't sin, but, but if anyone does sin, let me just tell you. Let me just tell you what God has done for sinners. Let me just tell you what what his love has done for people who haven't loved him well. Here, let me tell you this. Then we'll get back to obedience. We'll start talking about what it looks like to love him in return. So look at how has God loved sinners. I want to just pull out three things from these first two verses in this chapter. Three ways in which God has loved sinners well through Jesus. When you know God through Jesus, through what Jesus has done, Described in these first two verses, obedience is what it, is what it looks like to, to, to follow him, to know him. So what has God done? What has he given us in Christ? Three things. The first thing that John points us to, that God has given to sinners, is an advocate. It's a powerful, beautiful word. If anyone does sin, or as we might say, because we've just read verse 10 of chapter 1, when we sin, verse 10 says, if anybody says they haven't sinned, they're a liar. They make God out to be a liar. They don't know what they're talking about. So we know John assumes everybody's sin. So we might say, when we sin, I don't want you to, but, but when we sin, remember, we have an advocate. What does that mean? Well, the word advocate really means much the same thing that we mean by it in a legal sense. We, have, we talk about advocates today. We often call them defense attorneys, but... Advocate is is another word for them. When you're charged with a crime, you get your day in court. On your day in court, you don't have to stand on your own. If you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. When you stand in court on your day, 
you have an advocate who stands for you. And the judge and the jury, when they look at you, they look at you through that advocate. That means, that means when that advocate speaks, you're speaking. It means all the skill that your attorney has is your skill that day. It means their polish, their intellect, their charisma, anything and everything that's true of them becomes in that time true of you. And the role of Jesus, the reason God has given him to sinners, is to stand for them as their advocate before their judge. So that when that judge looks on these sinners, he sees them through Christ. Jesus stands in the place of sinners before the judgment they deserve, appealing their case, making their defense, a case for their pardon. And John is reminding us that God, the same God who made us, the same God against whom every one of our sins has been committed, is the God who sent his only son to stand for us before judgment so that we wouldn't have to stand alone in our sin. The first gift God has given to sinners is an advocate. But, you might ask, what's his case? What kind of defense does he make? What is he going to appeal to to convince the judge that we shouldn't be punished? What you need to know, the next thing that you need to know is that God has given sinners not just an advocate. He has given them a propitiation. And I know that's a word that we don't commonly use. I, I want to explain what that word means, but I want to make sure you also get this context, that you're feeling why this word needs to be said next. John has appealed to Jesus as our advocate. That's a good thing, but we, we should wonder, what, what's he going to say for us when he stands for us before the judge? I mean, is he going to look to get us off on a technicality? I mean, a lot of times, most of us, you know, we don't spend our days in court. If we encounter a courtroom scene, it's in television. And a lot of times in TV, the defense attorneys, I mean, they make their money by getting guilty people off. And in order to get a guilty person off, it's just going to take them finding some loophole, some sort of technicality, blowing some smoke over the truth to make it, make it less clear than what it could be, to create some sort of reasonable doubt that gets their client off. You know they're guilty as a viewer. The only question is, is, is how their lawyer is going to get them off the hook. And that's where the intrigue comes in. And, and the shows are the, these, these sort of moral tales as often as not where, where, the, where the defense attorney is trying to sleep at night knowing he just got this monster off the hook and put him back into, the, back into, in, into society. And how can you live like that? And then reminding your, themselves that you know, the whole system depends on me doing my job. I had to do it. I had to do it. And then usually just stopping off at the bar on the way home. Jesus does not represent us in that fashion. There's no intrigue here. There's no lack of clarity. There are no technicalities or loopholes. Jesus stands up to the truth fully. He admits it. He acknowledges every detail of it. He is more honest about it, about our guilt, than we are even. And there is no claim here that there is not enough evidence to convict us. There is. The only claim here that John's making when he says Jesus is our advocate is that this advocate, this advocate has made sure that justice has already been served. That's where this propitiation word comes in. It's a word taken from the sacrificial system in the ancient world. 
not just the biblical sacrificial system, but sacrifices made to Greek gods or Roman gods as well in their temples. Propitiation is a sacrifice made to a god to appease that god's wrath. A a, a sacrifice made to a god to absorb wrath of that god towards the person who's making the sacrifice. That's what it meant in its original context, and that's what it meant in the, in the Greek world, and that's what it meant in the Bible too. But that's where the similarity between the, the gods of the Greeks and the sacrifices to propitiate them, that's where the similarity between those sacrifices and, and the biblical sacrifice John's talking about stops. And I want to make sure you know, this is, we are not talking here about what you may have read in Homer. So to see something of the depth of God's love in the claim that he has given us a propitiation, you need to know the truth about where God's wrath comes from, how it may be different than what you're expecting, and, and where this sacrifice comes from to appease his wrath. I'm going to make sure these two things are really clear. So here's where God's wrath comes from in the Bible. The Bible's really clear about it. He has wrath towards sin. He is personally affected by sin. But, but what you need to know is that his wrath against sin is always a byproduct of his love. It's not capricious. It's not arbitrary. It's not random. It is loving. Now, here's what I mean by that. For him, sin is personal. It's an attack on something he deeply loves. It's very different from the kind of petty personal sensitivities of the Greek gods and goddesses of Israel's neighbors. If you read Homer or any of, the, uh, of those ancient mythologies, you'll see that those gods are always easily offended. They have these petty alliances with humans that get tweaked by one thing or another over the course of a battle. They get touched off. They're, they're capricious. They're random. God's wrath in the scriptures is entirely consistent. It is, it, it is clearly communicated, and it's the inevitable result of, of this personal attack on something that he loves. So don't think about God... We have to avoid thinking about God as a kind of meter maid, for example. In his, in his administration of justice in the world, he isn't to us and our sin what the meter maid is to a, an over-parked car. You know, in that case, if you're out there handing out parking tickets for Park Happy or whatever other company is, is uh, ruling Nashville's parking lots with an iron fist and very, very unreasonable fees, if, let's say you're one of those people, it's... It's, it's, not a, it's not a personal thing for you, right? When, someone's, when someone offends the rules, I mean, I'm guessing. I've not been a meter maybe. I'm, I'm guessing you're just out there handing out tickets. You know, you're just looking at dashboards for those little tickets, and you're looking at the time, and if it goes one minute over an hour, you're going to hit them with the $75 fine that they reasonably have incurred. <laughs> but it's not personal. It's just cause and effect. You know, it's just cause and effect. You chose to do this, park. 30 seconds too long in your spot, and so this is what happens. Sometimes we think that God should relate to our flaws like that. It shouldn't be personal. I mean, and, and then we should, and we kind of shrug our shoulders and think, well, why doesn't he just get over it? In the same way that we think, why doesn't that meter may just give me the extra 30 seconds? But, but, but God's relationship to our sin is actually a lot, not like what a meter maid is to a parking ticket, but think about what a father is to a daughter who's been abused to the abuser of that daughter. So in the, in the headlines this week, we've, um, I don't know if you guys have, have seen this, there's been a lot of publicity lately this week about the trial of a, a, uh, one of the former coaches or trainers rather for the USA gymnastics team who had been abusing his trainees for years, decades even. 
and it's come to light now. He's going to trial. He's going to get what he deserves. Now, imagine you're the father of one of these gymnasts who had entrusted your little girl to this trainer, believing that their credibility, vouched for by so many other credible institutions, would make sure your daughter was safe, and you find out she wasn't. Now, what you feel towards this trainer is wrath, not just a meter made sense of, hey, you know, cause and effect. I mean, I guess he should get punished, sure, because, you know, he did something that we say he can't do, so. Now, you, you, you burn hot with wrath because you love the daughter who was abused. Your love is what separates your response from how a meter maid feels about an overparked car. There's no love involved there. That's just simple cause and effect. But God's love for sinners who are hurting themselves through their sin, for those who are hurt by their sin, for the world that is destroyed by sin, his love burns so hot that when he sees sin, he sees it as an attack on what is beloved to him, and he stands opposed to it from the core of his being. He can't just shrug his shoulders at it. His wrath is a byproduct of his love. That's where his wrath comes from, but what we need to see from from John here, that's why propitiation is necessary, why he can't just sort of look past what we've done. Something has to appease this righteous wrath that he feels towards sin. But what you need to know, in case it's not clear yet for you, is that that what God has done to appease his wrath is absorb it himself. Jesus, John says, is the propitiation for our sins. That means he absorbs God's wrath for our sins. And that means that his blood is the basis for his defense of us before the Father. As an advocate, when he stands before the judge, he says, look at my blood. It paid everything that was owed. It is worthy They don't deserve to be punished anymore. But it's not as if when Jesus does that, it's not as if this is him throwing himself on the bomb for us. It's not as if this is Jesus diving in front of a bullet God had shot at us, thwarting God's plans for us. I think one reason we tend to shrink back from the notion of God's wrath is that it makes God sound like a kind of angry or pedantic tyrant that Jesus has to talk off the ledge. That's not it at all. What John's going to say in a couple of chapters is this, chapter 4. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This was something that the father and the son did together. In other words, God absorbs his own wrath against our sin, and he does that on his own initiative not because we deserved it, but because he he loves sinners. The same love that burns with wrath against sin, it's that same love that has made up this way to forgive sinners who trust in him. And that is how Christ defends us. When he stands as an advocate for sinners, he stands there appealing to the very blood God sent him here to shed. He was perfectly righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous, John tells us. The one man on earth who who ever lived and deserved to live. But he died willingly. And he died purposefully. So that God's just and righteous and loving wrath against sin could be completely absorbed and done away with. 
So friends, if you're feeling this morning convicted by sin, if you're feeling the weight of what you've done, then you should know that what you're feeling is, is actually a pointer to the truth. Anyone who tells you not to worry about what you've done, however good their intentions might be, is not leading you towards freedom or towards healing. They're just offering you an undersized Band-Aid over a gaping wound. Your sin is as serious as your conscience is telling you and far more. But in Christ, if you trust him, you deserve to be forgiven. God wants you forgiven. Jesus earned your forgiveness. And it's yours right now, this morning, if you'll trust in him. Maybe you're sitting out there doubting that. Doubting that, maybe it sounds a little too good to be true. Maybe you think, I see that John is saying Jesus will be an advocate for sinners and that he's this wrath-absorbing sacrifice for sinners. And that sounds good, but, but surely not the kind of sinner that I am. That's where this third gift that John points us to becomes important at the end of chapter 2, or excuse me, at the end of verse 2. So, so some of us maybe are tempted to think that, 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 that this solution for sin is fine for run-of-the-mill sinners, you know, people who maybe go just over the speed limit like twice a week, or people who every now and then download a pirated movie, or maybe they shade the truth a bit to, to dodge a little bit of what somebody else might think about them if they knew the full picture. But, but, it, but, but it won't work for people who've done what I've done. If you're wondering that this morning, you should know the, the importance of the end of, of verse 2. John says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And then he says, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, God has given sinners a sacrifice that is fully, completely, all sufficient to cover every sin. That's what John means when he says that his, he is a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. What Jesus has done can cover everything ever done by anybody who will ever look to him and trust him instead of themselves. So, so, so it, it, on a quick reading of this verse, if you just pulled it out, and this is the only thing you, you had, you might think what he's saying is that Jesus has already paid for the sins of everybody everywhere. So everyone's sins are going to be forgiven. And and. and, and we need to know that, that that's not actually what he's saying because he says just the opposite later in this letter. He, he talks about near the end of the letter when he's winding it down that there, there is a, diff, a life and death difference between those who have Jesus and those who don't. That's why it's so important that you understand who Jesus is and come to trust him. To have the son is to have eternal life. To, ha- to not have the son is, is not to have life, he says. So what he's not telling, he's not telling us here that, that Jesus' blood covers every sin that's ever been committed. He's, he wouldn't contradict himself like that. I think what he's doing is saying Jesus' blood could cover every sin of every person in the whole world if they would trust him. That means he can definitely cover yours. No matter what it is, no matter how bad and unforgivable you think it is, you're wrong. Jesus can forgive it. His blood is enough. So trust him. Try him. It'll be enough for you if you trust him this morning. That's what John's trying to tell us. Three gifts of God's love for sinners that he wants on the table in the front of your minds before he starts telling you why it's so important that you need to obey him. 
Now, now we've set that table. I want to spend the next few minutes here before we're finished up this morning talking about obedience and how sinners love God. We've talked about how God loves sinners, what he's done because they're sinful, because he knows that they are and has accounted for that through Jesus. Now we want to talk about how if you've come to know this God, if who God is to you is defined by Jesus, what you know about him is what you've learned through Jesus. If that's who God is to you, if that's who you know, know him to be, then obedience becomes a natural and inevitable and cause and effect connection from knowing him. When we know God through Jesus, we are going to want what God wants and we're going to trust what God commands. Now, now I want to make sure that you can see that John is making this connection between knowing God knowing him through Jesus and obeying him. And then I want to say a few things about why I think that connection is so important. So first, let me point you to what's obvious, I think, right on the surface of this passage, starting in verse 3. John is connecting us from knowing God to obeying God. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him. We actually have a relationship with this God, the God I've just defined in verses 1 and 2, who gave us an advocate and a propitiation that's enough for all of us. By this we know we know that God if we keep his commandments. Cause and effect. To know him is to obey him. Same thing made in a little different way. In verse, same point made in a slightly different way in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, I know this God who gave me an advocate and who gave me a propitiation for my sins. I know this God, but then doesn't keep his commandments? Well, that person's a liar. The truth's not in him. He doesn't know God, not if he doesn't care to obey him. He doesn't know this God. And then it makes it again in some slightly different language. Whoever keeps God's word or his commandments, in him truly the love of God is perfected. I think what he means there, their love for God is complete. It's internalized. It's now their operating system. You know that they love him from their heart because they obey him, because they keep his word. And by this we may know that we are in him abiding in him, fusing our life with his in an intimate, personal relationship. We know this when we walk in the same way that he walked. So John's drawing a connection here that I hope is clear. And I'm going to push some of the details of this connection here in a second. But just for now, hopefully this connection is clear. There is a deep and inevitable connection between personal knowledge of God through Jesus when Jesus defines who he is to you. When you know that God, you will obey him. Why? Why is obedience what it looks like to know him? I think two reasons. When we know God through Jesus, when we know him personally, not just know about him, but know him as a friend in our life, and when we, what we've learned of him through this relationship is that he is one who loves sinners, even at the cost of his own son. And this is what we've learned of him. We'll start to want what he wants. I think that's true of personal relationships in general, like all, all the time. When, when you get to know somebody better, when it's a personal and intimate friendship with somebody, you start to see things from their perspective more than you used to. 
never perfectly. It's never all, all together uh, united. So you see everything like they do, but you, you grow to see the world from their perspective. You sh- come to share something more of their instincts. You come to be affected by what affects them. When you know something's important to them and you know them well and you love them, it becomes more important to you. When something that's important to them is, is negatively affected, when it's hurt, when it's destroyed, you feel that pain along with them. You can't be callous towards what affects them. That's just how friendship works. It's what it looks like to love someone else. So if we've come to know and love God, one of the things we'll have come to know is that he takes sin as seriously as he does. That sin is a personal attack on everything he loves most in his world. That sin is so serious to him, he can't just shrug it off. That he's against it at the core of who he is. Knowing him through Jesus, we'll look at Jesus and we'll see in Jesus the measure of just how much he hates sin and how far he's willing to go to eliminate its effects. He put the life of his only beloved son on the line. He put his son in the grave because of how seriously he takes sin. So when we know God through Jesus, then we're going to start taking on his view of sin. We'll start to recognize just how much it costs him to forgive us. And when we know him in that way, we're not just going to be able to shrug our shoulders at sin in our own lives, to just let it run off our own backs like water off of a duck. If we did, we'd make him out to be a fool. We'd be scoffing at his sacrifice. We'd be saying, you know, I mean, I guess that was a nice gesture that you sent Jesus and, and killed him like that for my sin. But isn't that a little bit like, like trying to shoot a fly with a nuclear warhead? I mean, is sin really worth that? Is it that big of a deal? When we, when we just keep on sinning as if it's no big deal, what we show is that we just don't know God at all. We just don't see things from his perspective. We aren't impacted by what impacts him. We don't feel what he feels when he sees sin. So what John is, would say to us is that if you say, I know him, but then don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. You don't know him. How could you? To abide in him is to come to walk like he walked, not in order to get access to him, but because you already do have access to him, because you're already in him, because who he is is already shaping who you are, because when you abide in him, you come to want what he wants. You take his affections on as your own. That's what friendship always should do. And that's why obedience is so important for Christians. Because obedience comes from love, not from fear, not from pride, but from love for the God who loved us in Jesus. And if we don't obey him, if his commands aren't important to us, it's just a sign that we just don't know him to begin with. I think that's the first thing John means in this connection. How sinners will love Jesus looks like obedience. Because when we come to know God, through Christ, we're going to want what he wants. The other thing, the other reason I think that this connection has to hold, when you know him, you come to obey him, is that when we know God through Jesus, when what he's done in Christ 
at great cost to himself to love people like us who don't deserve it, defines who, G, who he is to us, then we're going to trust what he commands. If you know him, then you know that, that his all-powerful love comes through in what he's decided to do through Christ. And that means you can't doubt his love. Disobedience, though, always comes from doubting his love. One of the things we do when we disobey is, is we have to question that, that what God has told us to do or not to do is good for us. This, this comes out in the garden, in the Bible's description of the, of the first sin. Adam and Eve have been given these clear commands, and they've been given everything that they need all around them. But, but there's, this, there's this subtle, powerful lie that comes into their hearts. They start to wonder if maybe God had ulterior motives than their good when he told them not to eat from that one tree over there. They think, well, maybe it would be better for me, actually, if I did eat. Now, God doesn't want me to because he doesn't want me to be like him. He wants to hold back something as his own and not give it to me. So, so I can't trust him. I can't trust his boundaries. I got to take what I can get. I'm on my own. Anytime we reject something God has told us, we have to doubt that him telling us to do this or not to do this was, is good for us. We have to, in other words, see him as a potential threat to what's good for us as someone who cares more about his own interests than ours. And if we feel that way about his commands, what we're showing is that we don't know him at all. How could we think that he wouldn't want what's good for us when he gave his only begotten son? How could we think that he would want to hold back something that's good for him, protect it from us, when he gave himself up completely on the cross? When Jesus defines who God is to us, then we may not understand the boundaries he gives us. We may not even initially like them. But we won't be able to doubt that they're good, that they come from the same place that sent Jesus on our behalf. They come from the heart of love that a father has for his children. If we reject God's commands, what we're showing is that we don't know God in Jesus. If we did, we'd trust his commands. Sometimes, uh, both in the scriptures and I think in our, own, in our own minds, and certainly in the history of the church, there's been this tension, this pulling back and forth between, between sin and importance of it and God's grace to account for it and forgive it, between behavior, obedience, and trusting in God to do something that we can't do for ourselves, sometimes those can, those can feel like they're in tension with one another. In one of Paul's letters, he writes, uh, imagining something somebody might say about all the grace he's been celebrating in his letter to the Romans. He says, well, well maybe somebody would say, well, if, if God's just going to forgive me anyway, why not just keep on sinning? Then he just gets to keep on forgiving me, and his grace abounds more and more and more, and it makes him look better. So I'm kind of doing God a favor if I just go ahead and, and sin, right? Gives him a chance to be the bigger man, so to speak. And Paul says, it's ridiculous. If we think of the fact that God promises to forgive all sin through Jesus as an excuse to just keep on sinning, then maybe there's a kind of logic behind that way of thinking, but there's no relationship there. And here's what I mean. Maybe, maybe you think Christ's sacrifice could cover all the sin of the whole world, John said. So why not just go ahead and tack on a few more? What's the harm? I'll ask forgiveness tomorrow. 
He's got it covered. Another way to think about that way of thinking would be that basically you can't imagine any other motive for obedience than, than fear of consequences. Okay, so if, if Jesus is going to protect me from the consequences, why not just do something else? Sinful. I don't have anything to worry about. No reason to be afraid. As if fear were the only reason to obey in the first place. As if self-interest is the only reason to act one way and not another. That's starting from the wrong place, friends. Relationally, it misses the point. Whatever kind of loose logic might be there. It treats a relationship with God as simple cause and effect. As a simple transaction, not as a matter of love and affection. Because when we act out of a relationship with a God who's made himself known to us in Christ, our loves are going to change. Our hearts will want different things than what they did. And what it will look like is lives that more closely, if not perfectly, emulate Jesus' life. When we abide in him, in a deep and intimate personal relationship with him, we'll walk in the same way in which he walked. Not because we have to. Not because we're proving something. Not because we're afraid of what else might happen. But because we love him. Because we know we can trust him. Because we have come to know him through Jesus. And that's all we need to know. Father, we know that your word is clear on how important it is for us to obey. We also know that there's plenty of sin left in even the most holy saint's heart in this life. That we are always living in between. We pray that through this clear view of Jesus you've given us in your word this morning, you would continue to purge us from wanting things that are bad for us and and, and things that are opposed to what you want, things that treat your sacrifice as if it was silly, as if sin isn't as important to, uh, as you have, have told us it is. We pray that you would just change our hearts so that we love what you do and want what you want. I pray that you would use your word this morning to remind us of the advocate we have and that that wouldn't turn us free to go do whatever we want, but that that would capture our hearts so we want what you do. We know that this is a work you'll have to do. Your spirit is our only hope for taking on the character of Jesus. And so here we are praying to you again like we do every week and every day. Please, Father, not because we deserve it, but because you've told us your love is steadfast. Would you change us so that we can bring you glory in our lives? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.